So let's open our Bibles to James, the New Testament book of James, to chapter 5, please, and to verse 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12 of James chapter 5. The topic we find there, James uses the farmer as one example of patient waiting for the coming of the Lord. The title of our message, Hi-ho the Dario, the farmer in the Bible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here today. And Lord, one of the reasons that we are here is to listen to the still, small voice of your Spirit in our hearts as the Word of God is read and taught as your Spirit is in this place to minister to us directly and through others, Lord, who may share with us today things that are wonderful about you, about your grace, about your mercy, about your love. Lord, some of us are hurting physically, financially, spiritually. Talk to each of us from this text, Lord, about what it teaches, but what it also teaches us. Make it relevant to us, we pray. Be our teacher, as you promised you would be. We ask it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. After first service, once you're done fellowshipping, you might want to go out for breakfast. After second service, you'll probably be thinking about some place where you want to eat lunch. Wherever you decide to go, you'll most likely have to wait. You give your name, and then the size of your party, and you wait. Hopefully, after not too long, you're escorted to your table. What do you do there? Well, you wait some more. Hopefully, not for too long, but you wait. Once you've ordered, then you're going to have to wait for your food to arrive. When you've finished eating, unless you're at Chili's, where you can pay right there at the table, you'll wait for the check, and you'll wait twice, because it has to come back to you after you've put your card or cash in that silly wallet. My question then is this. Doesn't all that waiting make you the waiter? It does. Now, according to one site I consulted, the average person throughout their lifetime spends five years waiting in lines and queues. Five years. That doesn't include red lights. That's a whole other category. And this is why I don't mind seeing people who are waiting doing stuff on their smartphones. Smartphones have taken the sting out of waiting. I think smartphones were designed by people waiting in line. When I whip out my iPhone 6 and return to my turn on words with friends and the three or four games I'm playing, I am in control of my line. In fact, you can go ahead of me if you want, because I want to wait even longer while I come up with that 100-point word. Now, in our verses, James suggests we see ourselves as waiters. Number one, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. And number two, our waiting takes place among other believers. How we wait for the Lord among other believers is our topic. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you should have a patient expectation while waiting for the Lord. And number two, you should have a persevering endurance while waiting with His saints. First of all, in verses 7 and 8, let's look at our patient expectation. Now, whenever I mention Disneyland, someone tells me a horror story to, about the time they waited in line practically all day for a particular attraction. At least Disney tells you ahead of time, by signage, how long the wait is going to be so you can make an informed choice. So you come up to 
uh, soaring over the world, and it says your wait is going to be 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes, three days, you know, whatever it is, and you don't have to go in. You can move on to the next attraction. You can also download any number of apps that tell you the current wait times so you can have a better strategy for how you're going to wait. And finally, you can plan ahead and get fast passes to minimize wait times. I look at it this way. When it's all said and done, since you're going to spend five years of your life in lines and queues anyway, why not do it at the happiest place on earth with your family? So quit complaining. Christians are called to a very special, it's a very exciting kind of waiting. We are waiting for what James calls the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now was James referring to the Lord's coming back to the earth to establish the kingdom of God on the earth? Some people say yes, but the answer is no. He had to be referring to another coming because in verse 8, he says that this coming of the Lord is at hand and that can be translated, it is near. One of the commentators I especially trust for scholarship says this of that phrase, and I quote, he says, His statement here leaves no doubt that James, like Peter, Paul, and John, looked for the personal return of Jesus Christ as imminent. And this attitude of expectancy was in keeping with the attitude that Christ had inculcated. The Lord had instructed his followers to be ready and watching. If they had believed that he would not return until centuries later, there would have been no occasion or need to watch for his return. Jesus, excuse me, James was talking about a coming of Jesus that was imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. The coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom of God is not an imminent event. It is preceded by at least the seven years of the Great Tribulation. It can never be said to be imminent. The imminent coming of Jesus is what we commonly call the rapture of the church. It is the coming promised by Jesus to the members of the church, those who are saved from the day of Pentecost until he comes. It is the coming that is taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read these verses to you. Paul the Apostle is writing and he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, meaning deceased believers, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The dead in Christ from the church age will be raised from the dead. They will be given resurrection bodies. Then living believers will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, to be caught up to heaven by Jesus with his resurrected saints. At some point after this, the seven-year tribulation on earth will begin, and at the end of those seven years, Jesus returns in his second coming, not for the church, but with the church, and that's when he establishes the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. Uh, also to quote, 
if the hope of the Lord's return is relegated to such a remote future that it has no present impact on our way of living, then this great Christian hope has no, uh, no longer exercises the vital influence upon Christian living that James and other New Testament writers presented it as having. Now, what's interesting about all this, we're talking about this so that we understand which coming uh, that James had in mind, but James wasn't teaching them about the rapture. His wording assumes they all knew about it and were aware of its imminence. James is giving them and us an important teaching on exactly how we are to wait for an event that is imminent. How to wait for an event that is imminent. Do you know what an oxymoron is? It's not a person addicted to oxycodone. It's a combination of contradictory or incongruous words. Bitter sweet is an oxymoron. So is dull roar or found missing. They're opposite words. We understand them, but they're incongruous. Waiting for something that is imminent, that's not a true oxymoron, but they are two somewhat contradictory ideas. If something is imminent, there's no waiting. If you're waiting, how can it be imminent? Waiting for the imminent coming of the Lord would create a problem for the Gentile church of Thessalonica. Since Jesus' return was imminent, many believers then quit their jobs because in a way that made sense. If Jesus could come back right now, then what am I doing? I need to be waiting for him to come back. But there's a particular kind of waiting that we do for the imminent return of the Lord. It requires that we keep working both in the world and for the Lord while simultaneously proclaiming he could come at any moment. The Apostle Paul got involved in this situation in Thessalonica and he basically said, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. So yes, we are all waiting for the imminent return of the Lord and we do it by working. And so to help illustrate this special kind of waiting, James said in verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He waits patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. God is in control of the rains. Nothing the farmer can do about that. Similarly, God is in control of the coming of Jesus. He said it was imminent, but that only means it could be today or it might be tomorrow. It's in his timing and we wait for it. The farmer must work furiously within God's timetable. He has to prepare the fields for planting, sow the seeds, tend to the field. He must harvest the crop and then take the fruit to market. All of this in the season that God has given him. Similarly, we are to work furiously as Christians within God's timetable. The fact that the Lord could return at any moment is meant to encourage me to stay busy. It should never have the opposite effect where I just give up and wait doing nothing. Verse 8, James says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We should have the same active patience of a farmer. We, we typically think of farmers as being patient, but they work really hard while they're being patient. They have to wait for what the Lord promised He would do, but while they're waiting, they are just a flurry of activity. Establish our hearts is an exhortation to go on growing in the Lord. It calls on us to work towards producing mature fruit in our walk. Our hearts are the field upon which the Word of God was sown, and if we're Christians, it has taken root. So now we need to tend to our heart and bring forth fruit a hundredfold, spurred on by the imminence of the coming of the Lord. 
If you do a lot of reading of Christian blogs or Christian magazines, you'll see that it's become popular for critics of pre-tribulational, pre-millennial teaching like ours to suggest that we are promoting an escapism that leads to inactivity. And they say that those who believe in the imminent rapture aren't interested in this world. They just want to escape this world and ignore its problems and not do anything about it. Well, nothing can be farther from the truth. James and all the writers of the Bible came to exactly the opposite conclusion. These are the guys who taught the imminent coming of Jesus and then said, work furiously to preach the gospel and to make the world a better place. The imminent and therefore pre-trib, pre-mill coming of the Lord incites furious spiritual activity, never the opposite. Jesus is coming. Get busy is uh, the footnote to that. Now in verses 9 through 12, you should have a persevering endurance while waiting with the saints. There's a commonly quoted poem that's a good setup for what James wants to say in the remaining verses. If you've been in church for any number of years, you've heard this before. It goes like this. To walk above with saints we love, that will indeed be glory. To walk below with saints we know, well, that's another story. The poet is putting his finger on the fact that you're weird. Or that I'm weird, depending on what seat you're in. Warren, Beers, uh, Warren Wiersbe likes to say, no doubt you've heard it said, if you ever find the perfect church, please don't join, because if you do, it won't be perfect anymore. I think James is hitting something that we all know to be true, but we try to ignore that we don't always get along and that we're not always going to get along because we're human beings. And quite honestly, uh, some of the people that maybe are even your best friends in the church or your, your closest that you fellowship with, they're people you would have never met in the world, you have nothing in common with, you wouldn't have even liked them. But now we're in the church, we kind of, uh, all the barriers are broken down and we get to know each other. Uh, and, and, and yet at the same time, since we're all flawed and imperfect, there are going to be problems. There are going to be problems. It's a formula for problems. So James turns his attention to our being patient with one another as we wait for the coming of the Lord. So, wait for the coming of the Lord, it's imminent, but we need to work furiously and we work with other believers who we don't always get along with, who we have problems with. So verse 9, Don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James is definitely talking to and about Christians. He calls us all, men and women, brethren. We can't wiggle out of this exhortation. Are you familiar with the Mr. series of children's books? How many of you have read those? Mr. Series. They're, they're great. You need to get one. Our favorite was always Mr. Tickle. Because at the end of Mr. Tickle, you would do what? You would tickle your kids. And there's just nothing better, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, than tickling a little toddler until they can't breathe. <laughs> Is there anything better than that? If you're a mandatory reporter, I... I Nothing dangerous is happening to children in my home, but they just, little kids, when they laugh, it's just fantastic. And so, Mr. Tickle, well, there is a Mr. Grumble. He's described as hating laughter and hating singing. Mr. Grumble's name suited him well. Bah, he would grumble every morning when his alarm clock rang. The start of yet another horrible day, he would say. Mr. Grumble doesn't care if Mr. Bump gets hurt. They're great books. You need to get them. 
Apparently, grumbling was a major problem among the dispersed Messianic Jews James was writing to. The word he used describes an inner feeling of dissatisfaction and personal irritation with other believers. It arises in your heart, especially when you are mistreated. Do any of you sigh? Don't answer that. Somebody does something and you sigh, I'm a sigher. Which means I'm a grumbler. It's a manifestation of grumbling. You know, somebody says something. Your wife asks you to do something. <sighs> sure, honey. Sure. Oh, you're, you're so busted. Did you sigh? Oh, no, I was just deep breath. I've just been practicing deep breathing. Now you're a sire and a liar. But uh, anyway, sighing, or this grumbling, it's not slandering or gossiping. It's not even murmuring. And that's probably why we don't see it as sin. It's quiet and it's personal. But it is against others and it affects our relationship with them and it can become open and hostile. You won't be able to establish your heart as long as you have any grumbling in it. And then James says, lest you be condemned. Now that doesn't have anything to do with your eternal destination. He's talking to believers who are going to heaven. It means you're going to be judged. And it's referring to the day you stand before Jesus at his reward seat where he will be the judge of your works that you performed for him after you became a Christian. And so grumbling isn't going to send you to hell, uh, but it's going to affect your rewards in heaven. Lord, wasn't I a good husband? Except for those 75,000 sighs, Gene. You counted them? Here's your head or numbered? I have to. I've got a whole department, in, you know, a whole math department just for you and stuff. So you are definitely a sire, so don't do it anymore. We should always deal with sin immediately because the Lord is standing at the door ready to return for us. James couldn't be any clearer about the fact that he believed that Jesus could come at any moment. Until that day, we're always going to have problems with others in the church. Instead of grumbling about other believers, James calls upon us to have a different type of patience, a persevering endurance. He sees that kind of persevering endurance among brethren in two places in the scripture. Among the prophets and in the life of Job. So first of all, the prophets, verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. The prophets are called and sent by God, were called and sent by God to speak the word of the Lord. I mean, these guys are heavy, heavy guys when it comes to the spiritual impact. I mean, when prophets came to your town, you should just put on sackcloth and ashes and throw dust in the air and get ready. They were going to speak for God. They were the ambassadors of heaven. And they were nevertheless, most of them, made to suffer at the hands of not Gentile non-believers, but of their own countrymen. Jeremiah comes immediately to mind. I found this short list of his sufferings. There's a lot more we could say about it, but here's just a few of them. He was persecuted by his own family. He was plotted against by the people of his own hometown. He was rejected and reviled by all of his peers in the religious world. Pasher, who was chief temple priest, had him whipped and put in stocks. He preached a sermon at the temple gate and was nearly killed by an angry mob for predicting that the temple would be destroyed. He was cast down into an empty, filthy cistern and left to die in the mud. He saw his original manuscript burned by wicked King Jehoiakim. 
And he was forced to go to Egypt against his will when the Jews refused to heed his prophecies to definitely not go there. Most of God's prophets were badly treated by their countrymen. In the book of Hebrews, we read this about the servants of God. This is from Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It says, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented. Just before he was stoned to death for preaching Jesus Christ to the Jews, Stephen said to his persecutors, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the Messiah. And so it was typical of the nation of Israel to mistreat and even kill their contemporary prophets. Then they would look back on them fondly. The next generation would think, oh, Jeremiah, what a great prophet. We wouldn't have done that. Meanwhile, they were persecuting the prophets that God had sent to them. This is a sad thing to say. But you ought to expect to be mistreated by other believers. Remember, there's no perfect church. Probably when people come forward at concerts and in church to get saved, we should tell them that now that you're a believer, you should read the Bible, you should pray, you should uh, share your faith with others, and you should fellowship with other believers who are going to mistreat you. Wait, what just happened? Well, it's just a given. It's all over the New Testament. It's in every church. And you need to be ready for it so that you don't just quit coming to church or get mad at the Lord or whatever you might do thinking, I don't deserve this. No, you don't. But the people that you're mistreating don't deserve that either. And so it goes both ways. We're just human. We're flawed. We see that prophets are an example of suffering, but what about patience? Well, the kind of patience James has in mind is what we would call perseverance. It is enduring mistreatment without quitting. James said in verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. That's that he's counseling. Persevere. Jeremiah wanted to give up. In fact, he never wanted to start serving the Lord as a prophet in the first place. Nevertheless, he persevered to the end, faithful to his calling by God, despite the mistreatment, constant mistreatment of his countrymen. We shouldn't quit working on account of the imminence of the Lord's return. And likewise, we shouldn't quit on account of mistreatment, even when it is at the hands of those who we minister to and are called to minister to us. This may not sound like much, but this is a big shock to most Christians throughout their walk with the Lord, that people that they just got to know or that they've known for years can seem to not treat them the way that they think they deserve to be treated. And so James is just blunt, honest, and saying, hey, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, we're not going to get along all the time. Just keep serving the Lord, work it through, and do it without grumbling. Now he gives a second example of persevering to the end. In verse 11 he says, you've heard of the perseverance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And so you're familiar with the story of Job. Satan accused him before God of serving the Lord solely because he was being blessed by heaven on a material basis. The devil suggested that if Job's material blessings were withdrawn, he would curse God. God knew Job was spiritual, so he allowed Satan to test Job. He lost everything, including his children and his health. 
For most of the book, he's sitting in the local dump using shards of broken pottery to scrape the boils he has from his head to his toes. That's his physical position, and that's where he's been reduced to. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. That sounds great. And they did comfort Job at first until they started to talk to him. Then they quickly entered a vicious cycle of argument and accusation, essentially saying that it was Job's fault that God only does those things to people who are in sin. It incited quite a lot of grumbling from Job while we're on the subject. In using Job as an example, James isn't excusing that or overlooking it. Job was a believer being mistreated by his peers who shouldn't have grumbled, but he nevertheless persevered through it. And that's going to be true of us. I, I would love to say that I'm going to get to a point in my life where I'm never going to sigh again. But that's probably wishful thinking. But I, I, I can certainly sigh less uh, and work through it to the end. James says, you've seen the end intended by the Lord. Even though others were deriding him, Job persevered. He should have done it without grumbling because of where it would end. Everyone familiar with Job knows the end. I feel like I have to give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to read the end of Job. So those of you who are on the edge of your seat wondering how this ends, you might want to plug your ears right now. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. By seeing the end of the lives of Bible characters like Job, we get an idea that God has an end in our lives. And we're reminded that grumbling is counterproductive. No use grumbling about how I'm being mistreated because God is going to work through that and use that to bring me to his expected end. And it's a glorious end where I am uh, changed into the image of Jesus Christ where I am perfected. I don't know why, but the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue, came to my mind while I was studying Job. Because of his girlish name, Sue is always getting into scrapes. He hates his name. To which I say, just tell people your name is Sam. But then you wouldn't have a best-selling country song. He eventually finds and confronts his absent father, whom he tries to kill. His deadbeat dad explains that he knew he wouldn't be around to make his son a man, so he gave him the name Sue so he'd have to be tough growing up. Well, it worked. Anyway, as the song ends, Sue understands and he says, and if I ever have a son, I think I'm going to name him Bill or George, anything but Sue. I still hate that name. At the end of his trial, do you think Job might have said, I understand what the Lord wanted to do, but I'd rather he would have left me alone. 
Well, here's what Job did say. He said, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. So you need to listen to the person who's in the situation, who's come through the situation, to understand the end. He persevered and he experienced the end God intended. We will persevere and experience the end God intends. James gives us an insight into what Job learned about God. He says he learned the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Wow. If we were anybody in a book club, you know what a book club is. You read a book and then you get together and talk about it. If we were in a book club and we had just finished reading Job and the question was, what do you see most about God in this book? Would anybody answer that he is very compassionate and merciful? That's a stretch even for Christians. Certainly non-Christians don't see it that way. This is one of the most often used arguments against Christianity just Job and the book of Job. I remember after I first got saved, um, I went back to my old uh, college professor at San Bernardino Valley College and uh, wanted to share Christ with him, and, and I did. And his argument back to me was, what about Job? How can I trust and believe and follow a God that would allow those things to happen, even knowing that suffering makes you a better person? And that was his big argument. There's no way he read the book of Job and said, wow, God is so compassionate and merciful. He saw God as uncompassionate and merciless as a result of the book of Job. But James tells us that as the Holy Spirit ministers to our heart and we see what's really going on behind the scenes, the conclusion that you should come to spiritually is that God is very, not just compassionate, very compassionate and merciful in his handling of Job. Now, Job did some grumbling, but we just read, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Wow. He quit his grumbling and he replaced it with prayer that pleased the Lord. If and when you have identified grumbling in your heart, pray for those you've grumbled against. Now, James turns his attention to another problem between the saints, the making of non-binding oaths. Some people think this next verse is out of context. It's just he forgot to say it earlier or he's something that he wanted to tag in there. But it's in the same vein of trying to get along with other believers. He says in verse 12, Above all, my brethren, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now apparently the Jews had devised an elaborate system of oaths by which they might swear that something was true when it was not true, or that they were going to do something that they didn't follow through with. Depending on what you swore by, God or the temple or something else in heaven or on earth, you could argue that your oath was not binding. And so you, you didn't follow through, and your friend came and said, hey, how come you didn't follow through what you said you do? Well, I swore by uh, you know, the temple. And the temple is on the earth. If I had sworn by God in heaven, I would have had to keep that oath. But you should have known that I was, it was a 50-50 swear. And, and they, they, seriously, this is the kind of thing that was going on. And obviously, this created problems among the believers because they didn't trust each other. They couldn't take each other's word. Kids on the playground understand this. When I was in elementary school, our oath was, cross my heart and hope to die... Stick a needle in my eye. Oh, wow. 
Gene is going to give me his Twinkie for sure. Because he crossed his heart, he hoped to die, and said I could stick a needle in his eye if he didn't give me his Twinkie. It was a totally binding oath with only one exception. Do you remember what the exception was? If you had your fingers crossed. And so the key was to cross your heart and hope to die while putting your other hand behind your back. And then when you ate your Twinkie, and they said, where's my Twinkie? You said, I had my fingers crossed. Now, if you caught somebody with their fingers crossed, then everything just kind of ground to a halt. But you had to be really sharp. Crossed fingers invalidate promises and allow you to tell lies without your pants catching on fire. In the film, some of you might remember the film, the uh, Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. He realizes his marriage is a farce when he discovers a wedding photo of his wife with her fingers crossed. They're not really married. James wasn't saying you can never make a vow or swear an oath. In the Bible, God himself is described as swearing an oath. This is in Hebrews chapter 6, quoting, I believe, from Genesis. James wanted the Messianic Jews to drop this whole cross your heart and hope to die habit and just tell the truth. You don't need to swear by anything in heaven or on the earth. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Can we swear oaths? Sure. There's, you, know, you can take the oath of office as our new president did. You can ha- have vows at your wedding. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making ba- vows non-binding by stupid uh, rules. Honesty is the way we ought to be waiting with other believers so that w- as we wait for the Lord, we're waiting in a way that is productive. Now here's what we've emphasized today. Imminent waiting calls for a special kind of patience. It's an active, working patience. We certainly believe the Lord's coming could happen now, but we are not escapists who shirk our responsibilities. We are those who work furiously to spread the gospel while there is time, and better the planet. Being among God's people on earth requires perseverance. You will be mistreated by other imperfect saints, and you will mistreat them no matter that you don't want to. Rather than be Mr. or Mrs. Grumble, pray for those who mistreat you and look past it to the end that God has in mind for you, because He is working all things together for good to those who love Him. Let's pray.